Let us all bow before Almighty Yahweh. Father, we come before you this day, your Sabbath day. We thank you for the blessings you've given us. We thank you and like to begin by thanking you for the life of Millie and the example that she set. We pray that we would remember her, that we would think fondly of her, that we would look to her as an example, for she certainly lived according to your words in many ways. Father Yahweh, we also pray and for those in need today, those who are sick, those who are unable to be here, those who are not feeling well. Father, we pray also for this assembly, that you would watch over each one here and also those watching afar. For we know, Father, those here are not the only ones part of the brotherhood here. There's many watching online and remotely, so we pray that you'd be with them as well. Father, we pray and we thank you for all things, and we know assuredly that all good things come from you, that nothing of value comes from any other source but from you. So we thank you, Father, and we praise you, and we give you all glory. I mean, once again, we pray that you'd be with the Deck and the Mansager families with the loss of our sister Millie Deck. And we ask all this in Yahshua's beloved name. Hallelujah. Y'all may be seated. I'd like to welcome our guests today and visitors, and um, certainly like to welcome all you here and extend a welcome to those online. It is a uh, cold day here in Missouri. I think winter has officially come. I'm not sure if it's winter yet. I guess it's not, but it is certainly here in full force this weekend anyway. Well, as you can see in this uh, title, I'm going to be speaking on a prophecy today. title is uh, Muhammad Ahmadi and uh, the Man of Sin. So to begin with, who is this figure we're talking about, Muhammad Ahmadi? Who is this? Who is this figure? Well, in Shiite tradition... Muhammad Ahmadi is the 12th and final imam before the prophet Muhammad is prophesied to return. Or here's what we find from the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's not a lot, but just to give you some information about who this man is, Muhammad Ahmadi, also called the hidden imam, imam is basically a reference to the leader of Islam, says that the 12th imam disappeared 878, and that would be CE, 12th and last imam, venerated by the Twelver sect, the main body of Shiite. So again, this is more of a Shiite tradition. Well, well, I'll explain that in a moment. Muslims, it is believed that Muhammad Ahmadi has been concealed by, says God, a doctrine known as occultation, and that he will reappear in time as the Mahdi, or messianic deliverer. So, as we see here from this reference, Muhammad Ahmadi, he was born supposedly 69 or 869 and disappeared at 878 CE. Now it's believed that this person will reappear near the end of this age to reestablish Islamic rule and law and preparation for the Prophet Muhammad. Now I mentioned that this is something that the Shiite branch of Islam believes. Let me give you a little bit, a little bit of information, not much, but on the uh, differences between the Shiite and Sunni. So the world is uh, split up with, on the Islamic side between two sects. One is Shiite or Shia, and the other is a Sunni. Now the Shiites, or the Shias, represents about 15% of all Muslims. Many of them is in Iran. And uh, the other 80-85% represents the remainder as the Sunnis. Now, Shiites and Sunnis share most things in common. They both believe in the Quran. They both believe in the Prophet Muhammad. But where they differ is the leadership. The Shiites believe that the imam or the leader or the caliph must come from the family of Muhammad. Whereas the Sunnis, they believe any Muslim can serve in that role. So for this reason... There's been a divide, there's been a split inside Islam between the Shiites and the Sunnis. So what we're talking about today is more of a Shiite tradition. That's why I explained this. This is more of a Shiite tradition. I don't believe all Shiites believe this, but certainly the, the bigger part, as I understand it, believes in this Muhammad Ahmadi figure, this Messiah-like redeemer that will return again before the Prophet Muhammad returns. 
Now, one tradition, again, as we see here, is that this uh, Muhammad Ahmadi is also known as the 12th Imam. There's only 12 Imams prophesied. This is the final Imam, again, before this prophet Muhammad returns. You know, for me, what's fascinating, though, about this Muhammad Ahmadi, what's really intriguing about this figure is the parallels we find between this man and the man of sin. And it's really remarkable when you look at Scripture, when you understand the prophecies revolving around the man of sin, and then you read about this tradition, the Shiite tradition around this Muhammad Ahmadi, it's striking the parallels between these two figures. So before we get into it, I want to introduce an author to you. Most of the quotes from the Islamic side is going to be coming from a man. This man's name is Walid al-Shobat. Many of you probably know who this man is. He's fairly well-known. Uh, wasn't well-known in the beginning, but let me give you some information about this man if you don't know who he is. He was born to an Islamic father, Christian mother. He was raised in Bethlehem, and for those who don't know, Bethlehem is in, is in the West Bank, right? It's Palestinian-controlled. As a young man, he was a staunch believer in Islam, even part of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, supposedly. He considered himself, I, I know from his uh, record or his biography, that he was uh, considered himself an extremist. Of course, the PLO is that type of organization. Like his father, he then married a Christian woman who then later challenged him to examine his belief system. He eventually did. In 1993, he converted from Islam to Christianity. And since then, he's been preaching against the danger of, dangers of Islam and also preaching on the uh, prophetic side from more of a Middle Eastern standpoint. And that's, for me, what's so intriguing about this man because for so long, prophecy has been viewed from my perspective from a, from a European standpoint. Everything's fo- focused on the Roman Church, focused on the Pope. And I believe the Roman Church and the Pope will have an, a part in anti-prophecy. But I also believe, based on what I see in Scripture, that Islam, too, will have a big part in end-time prophecy. So we see here, again, parallels between this Muhammad al-Mahdi and the man of sin. So this, this uh, Walid Shobat, he wrote a book. It's entitled God's War on Terror. Now, the first similarity I want to focus on today is that both Muhammad al-Mahdi, this, again, this 12th imam, and the man of sin will denounce, will reject Yahshua as Messiah and as a son of Yahweh. And the latter is certainly more important in this discussion. So before we uh, review the Islamic side, I want to first look at what Scripture says about this. So First John chapter 2, verse 22 through 23 says, Who is a liar but he that denies that Yahshua is a Messiah? He is anti-Messiah. So anybody who denies that Yahshua is the Messiah, he is by default, Scripture says, an anti-Messiah, that denies the Father and the Son. Whosoever denies the Son, the same hath not the Father. He that acknowledges the Son hath, has the Father also. So we see here the denial of Yahshua the Messiah equates to what? Or denial of Yahshua equates to an anti-Messiah. You know, I believe that we can view this from two perspectives. Number one, we can view this from the perspective of anybody who denies the Messiah would fit into this category, especially those who've come to the Messiah. And number two, I believe that we can also apply this as referring to specifically the man of sin, that the man of sin, the son of perdition, the evil one, will come and deny Yahshua as the son of Yahweh. You know, over the years... I've seen a lot of people come in and reject Yahshua. Not a lot. Maybe that's too strong of a word, but many. Too many, to, too many, in my opinion, come in and believe in the Messiah and then later reject him. I had a brother here who recently found out that he left, left the faith to join Judaism. You know, it's important that as believers... We recognize the absolute need for Yahshua the Messiah. That we recognize that we must accept him if we're going to be saved. You know, based on Revelation 14, 12, it says there a saint is defined as one who keeps the commandments and has faith in the Messiah. 
you know, realize that if we forego obeying the commandments or believing in the Messiah, we forego our relationship with the Father. That's what Scripture says. We disqualify ourselves as a believer in the New Testament. It is so vitally important that we obey our Father in heaven. And, as Scripture shows, we have faith in the one we call Messiah. We must believe and have faith in him. Now, according to Walid, while Islam accepts the Messiah as a prophet, and they do accept the Messiah as a prophet, they deny his sonship to the Father. Now, I'm not going to make any course corrections with the titles within these quotes. I'm going to read them as is. But here's what Walid says in his book on page 59. He says, Doctrinally, Islam and the Antichrist are in perfect agreement because they both deny the divine sonship of Christ, he says. Now he goes on to say, regarding those who do not convert to Islam, the Quran states that Yahshua will be a witness against them on the day of judgment. Notice, now, now pay attention to what it says here. It says, there is not one of the people of Scripture, referring to Christians and Jews, but will believe in him both his death and on the day of resurrection he will be a witness against them. And that's from the Quran. It says, Muslim scholars explain that the phrase, I will believe in him before his death, means that Christian and Jews will confirm that he is alive and has not died, and he is not God or the Son of God, but is Allah's slave and messenger. And Issa, which is a name they use for the Messiah in Islam, Yahshua, will testify against those who had called him the Son of God. So that's what, again, Walid says within his book. So we see here that according to Islam and the Quran, number one, Yahshua never died. And number two, he was not the son of Yahweh. He was not the son of Yahweh. He was, he was the slave to Allah. According to Islamic tradition, when Muhammad returns, Yahshua too will return and will explain and confirm that he was not the son of Yahweh. You know, talk about blasphemy, you know, contradiction of scripture. But this is what we find within the Quran. This is what we find within Islam. They recognize Yahshua as a prophet, but they deny his sonship. Or again, as we've already seen, so will the man of sin. Now, another parallel between the man of sin and Muhammad Ahmadi is where they will arise from. Now, we're going to spend quite a bit of time with this because it, it takes time to build this case. But where they will arise from. So, according to Islamic tradition, the uh, 12th Imam, or Muhammad Ahmadi, will come from the ancient territory of the Ottoman Empire. We're going to look at that empire in, in a few moments. Now, Bible prophecy indicates, I believe that the man of sin, too, will come from this same area. You know, we actually see indication of this in Daniel chapter 8, verse 21. So let's start there. Daniel chapter 8, verse 21 through 23, it says, And the rough goat is a king of Grisha. Now, as we know, that's Alexander, right? It says, And the great horn was between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it. Now we know that when Alexander died, that his kingdom was then divided amongst four of his generals. It says, four kingdoms shall stand. That's referring to as four generals. Shall stand out of the nation, but not, but not in his power. In other words, they never had the same strength that Alexander possessed. It says, and in the latter time of their kingdom, whose kingdom? Or Alexander's kingdom. It says, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fairest countenance, in understanding, dark sentences shall stand up. So again, the king of Grisha here represents Alexander the Great. The four horns represents the four generals who inherited his empire after his death. And as we see here, we also see that there's going to be another man near the end of this age, a last king. Now this last king is the man of sin, or the anti-Messiah. That is fairly well understood by most biblical scholars today. You know, what's intriguing here is, is his prophecy seems to show that this last king will uh, 
arise from the territory of Alexander the Great. It arise from the territory that was inherited by the four generals. So here's a map of the Grecian Empire. So you can see a map of the Grecian Empire. Now notice here that this empire never included Rome or Northern Europe. Many people are surprised with this. Alexander's kingdom never included Rome or Northern Europe. So based on this, it's unlikely that the man of sin will arise from Rome or Europe as so many people believe today. Now, the book of Revelation also provides some evidence as to where the man of sin may arise from, even possibly showing that it may be from the Ottoman Empire. And again, this is going to take some, some time to build. So let's look at Revelation 13, 1 and 3. It says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea. Now, the sea represents multitudes of people. Stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast. Now, the beast here represents the end of Messiah, represents the man of sin, the son of perdition. Rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. I'll explain the seven heads and ten horns later. This is upon his horns, ten crowns, showing kingship or authority. It says, and upon his heads, the names of blasphemy, showing rebellion to Yahweh. Now, in verse 3, it goes on to say, and I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. Wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. So we see here in the book of Revelation a beast. Now the beast here again is a man of sin, also known as we say here unto Messiah or the son of perdition as scripture also uses. It says here that he's going to have seven heads and ten horns. And we're going to explain these heads and these horns in just a moment as we go through this message. Now we see here that this man of sin is going to receive some sort of injury. It says he's going to receive a wound to, uh, to, to death. But we also see here that the injury is healed. And it says when this occurs, that the world will follow this man. Now, many believe that this refers to an actual injury that the man of sin himself will suffer, that the person of the intimacy will suffer, that he's going to receive some sort of some injury and he's going to be healed of this injury. I believe that this is speaking more symbolic. You know, matter of fact, I, let's turn to Revelation 17. We need to sort of bounce around just a little bit here to, to uh, understand. And Revelation 17 explains, by the way, what we find in Revelation 13. So Revelation 17, 9 through 11 says this, And here is a mind which hath wisdom. So again, now, now John Apotmos is, is receiving an explanation as to what these things mean. It says the seven heads are seven mountains. So the seven heads... As we saw within Revelation 13, 1, these are seven mountains, it says, on which the woman sits. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven, goes into perdition. So what does all this mean? Well, let's start with the beginning here. It says that the man of sin will sit on seven mountains, symbolizing Seven heads, seven heads. Now, many claim that the seven mountains are seven mountains within Rome. Now, based on the evidence, though, it's more likely, my mind, that these mountains represent kingdoms or empires. And many scholars understand this in this way as well. It says, you know, for example, mountain in Scripture. Mountain in Scripture is often refers to a kingdom. You know, we see in Micah chapter 4, for instance, that it says that Yahweh's kingdom. Yahweh's kingdom will reign over all other, or it says Yahweh's mountain, I should say. Yahweh's mountain shall reign over all other mountains in the millennium, in the kingdom. So we see there that mountain in the book of Micah represents kingdoms. It represents nations. Again, that's Micah chapter 4, verse 1, for those taking notes. So we see in Micah that a mountain represents a kingdom. And we also see here a connection between these seven mountains and seven kings. It says here that, these kings, five are fallen, one was, and one was yet to come, and there would also be an eighth. Now, do we know what or who these king, kings or kingdoms symbolize today? Well, I believe we have a pretty good guess. We believe here that five kings, fallen, 
as we, uh, you know what, let me read this slide here. Actually, uh, we have it in the slide. It says, five are fallen. So we believe this is Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Now, some will try to make room, which possibly could be true as well, that maybe the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid empires could be included and uh, perhaps Egypt and, and Assyria removed. Goes on to say, and one is Rome. Of course, that would be Rome. Is that that's the empire that existed during this prophecy, and the other is not yet come. Now we believe here that's the Ottoman Empire. We'll explain that. It says, and the beast which was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven. Now this eighth, which is of the seven, so there's a connection between this seventh and eighth. This is the Ant Messiah, and we believe that this 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 last. Beast will come from the territory of the Ottoman Empire. So how do we prove this? How do we prove or show that this is a possibility? Well, number one, I think we can all agree that the kingdom that existed during this prophecy was Rome. There's very few people who would disagree with that, so we start with a point that we all agree on. The kingdom that existed during this prophecy would have been Rome. Now, when most people think of Rome, they think of only the western half of Rome, with the capital being in Rome. But very few people think of the eastern half when thinking of Rome. Or the reality is Rome had two halves, one in the west, one in the east. The west was, again, the capital was Rome. The other was Constantinople. Constantinople. Constantinople was established by Emperor Constantine in 330 CE. Now, as a side note, Constantinople is Istanbul. So it's still around. It's just not called Constantinople. It's the largest city in the nation of Turkey. Now this empire was also known as, it became known as a Byzantine empire, which at its peak controlled parts of southeastern Europe, southwestern Asia, the northeast corner of Africa, Syria, Jordan, Israel, Lebanon, Cyprus, Egypt, eastern Libya, and Turkey. So that is and was the Byzantine Empire at its peak. Matter of fact, this empire would continue for another thousand years. Thousand years after the fall of Western Rome. Rome continued much, much further and much longer after the Western Rome fell. It would not be overthrown until 1453. 1453, which was conquered then by the Ottoman Turks. Now, after the defeat of the Byzantine Empire, the Ottoman Empire itself existed for about 600 years until its defeat in 1922. At its peak, this empire controlled southeast Europe, southern or western Asia, the Caucasus, North Africa, and the Horn. Of Africa. Matter of fact, here's a map of this vast empire. So this is a map, again, of the Ottoman Empire. Now, notice two important parallels we, we see in Scripture and in this map So the, between Alexander's kingdom and the Ottoman Empire. Number one, neither controlled Rome. Neither empire controlled Rome. And number two, both conquered much of the Middle East. Again, I believe that too much focus is placed in Europe today. I believe too many people are looking to Europe for the Pope or for, for, the, for the man of sin or the beast. I believe we need to be looking in the Middle East. Now, according to Revelation 17, the beast, the beast, and again, the beast is the anti-Messiah. The beast is the son of perdition. It says the beast is the eighth and is of the seven. So in my mind, this shows that there's a connection between the seventh and, and the eighth beast. There's a connection between the seventh and the eighth beast. So if, there's, if the seventh beast was the Ottoman Empire, what we see then is that this eighth beast would be within the same territory. Matter of fact, this is what we find from Walid as well. So here's what he says in his book. He says, the empire of the Antichrist will not be a new empire. Rather, it will be the revival of a previous great empire that will have suffered what the Bible calls a fatal head wound. And that's what we read in Revelation 13, verse 3, it says, This empire is the Islamic Ottoman Empire that replaced the Roman Empire after the fall of its remaining eastern section. Again, where I believe many people make their mistake is they view the fall of Rome, the western half, as the fall of 
the entire Roman Empire. The Roman Empire did not fall when the Western half fell. The Roman Empire continued for another thousand years, again, through the Byzantine Empire, which was then conquered by the Ottoman Turks. So based on this, we believe here that the man of sin may very likely come from the territory of the Ottoman Empire, just as we find with this Muhammad Ahmadi, just as we find with this, this 12th Imam. Now let's move on to another parallel between the man of sin and this Messiah-like figure within Islam, and that is a belief that both of these men will show great signs and wonders. I want to first focus on the man of sin. So Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 is known as the Olivet Prophecy, very important prophecy to remember. Matthew 24, 24 says, For there shall arise false messiahs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, and so much that if it were possible, they should deceive the very elect. So again, this is known as the Olivet Prophecy. Other two corresponding passages is Mark 13, Luke 21, very important to remember, where it says here that there will arise false messiahs, false prophets, showing great signs and wonders before Yahshua's return. Now, the word signs comes from the Greek semion. Thayer's defines this as an unusual occurrence transcending the common course of nature. Wonders comes from teres, Greek teres, and Thayer's, again, defines as a miracle. So we find here that the false messiah will be able to show great signs, miracles, that we can't naturally explain, that we can't explain away. Fire coming down from heaven, for instance, as we see in the book of Revelation. You know, because of this, we see here that he will deceive the world, and if possible, the very elect. Now, I believe that Yahweh will prevent the elect from being deceived, They're not going to be deceived, but I think this shows the deception that will occur before Yahshua's coming. You know, I've already seen people leave the faith, so I do believe deception is possible within the body of Messiah. But I don't believe those people were part of the elect. The elect are those who will be raised when Yahshua comes. Scripture says many are called but a few are chosen. I believe we've all been called. We've all received a calling to come to the truth, to accept the truth, to listen to the truth, to embrace the truth. But the chosen part depends upon us, depends upon what we will do with that calling. You know, being called and chosen are not the same thing. Called, again, is bringing us to the truth, to the faith, being chosen is being chosen at the resurrection. That is when we will know that we are part of the chosen. When Yahshua descends with his angels and gathers the elect, it says, from the four corners of this earth, then we will know, and only then, that we're part of the elect. So we see here that, again, this man of sin will perform great signs and wonders. You know, the reality is just because we're, we're baptized, again, doesn't mean that we're, that we're, again, part of this. We, too, could be deceived if we're not careful. And that's why this message is so important. That's why it's so important that we understand these prophecies and we realize what, what is coming. Because Yahshua says this. Yahshua says within the Olivet Prophecy that we will see these things occur. And he says, when we see these things, we're, gonna, we're not going to be able to explain them. They're going to be great signs and wonders even for us. Now, we also uh, see, and see where this uh, man receives his power in, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 2. So Revelation 13, verse 2, this is again a reference to the beast of the man of sin. It says, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet was as the feet of a bear, and the mouth as mouth of a lion. These, these, this is uh, symbolic, by the way. These animals typify different strengths of the beast. You know, leopard often represents strength. Bear represents, uh, or, or leopard, I should say, speed for leopard. Bear would represent strength. Lion, same thing. It says, and the dragon gave him his power. Dragon gave him his power. Again, the him here is the man of sin. And his seat and great authority. 
So as we see here, the dragon, and we know this symbolizes Satan the devil, says here that he will be the one who provides a beast or the man of sin with his power and with his authority. So what this man will be able to do, he will do. And it will be miraculous. It will be wonders. We will not be able to explain what this man is able to do. But, but here's the thing. What he does is demonic. What he does is not by the power of Yahweh's, but by, by the power of the evil one. You know, nothing we've seen will prepare us for what this man will be able to do along with his false prophet. We know the scripture says again that the false prophet will literally rain fire down from heaven. It also says that the false prophet will give life to a lifeless image. Again, the signs and wonders that these men will show will be beyond explanation. And this is why it's important that we understand these prophecies again and, and we watch. You know, Yahshua spent so much time within the word talking about watching and not being deceived. Do you think this was for naught? Do you think this was for no reason? Do you think there was a reason why Yahshua spent so much focus talking about deception, talking about, about watching, talking about being cognizant, being aware, being alert? Of course there was. Because we're going to see mass deception during this time. And we're going to see deception like we've never seen before. Again, I've seen people leave for, for, for simple reasons, and, and they've forsaken the Messiah. But when we see a man rain fire down from heaven, people are going to begin to wonder. And Scripture, though, speaks about this, and we need to know and understand. Now, like the man of sin, we know that, according to Shiite tradition, Muhammad Ahmadi will also show great signs and wonders. Again, this is what Walid says. It says, Islam tradition even confirms this. He says, Allah will give him power over the wind and the rain, and the earth will bring forth his foliage. He will give away wealth profusely. Flocks will be in abundance, and the Ummah, empire of Islam, will be large and honored. So we see here that according to this uh, Islamic belief, this uh, 12th Imam will receive power, great power, from Allah. That he's going to have power over the rain and the wind, it says. So like the end of Messiah, it's believed by, the, by many of the Shiites that this man will be given the ability to perform great signs and wonders. Well, this again sounds an awful lot like the man of sin. Yahshua warns us within the Olivet Prophecy that the man of sin, the false prophet, will be able to perform great wonders. And we see here, according to Islamic tradition, the same thing with this Muhammad Ahmadi. You know, I find it fascinating that we see so many parallels between these men, between this man of sin and, again, this Islamic leader. You know, while I'm not in favor in saying that this is exactly what will happen, I do believe it's something we should consider. Again, especially with the striking resemblances we find within the word. Now, we find another similarity between these men, and I want to begin with Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Daniel 7, verse 20. For most of you, by the way, you know this, but, but Daniel is really a corresponding book to the book of Revelation. We need to understand both Daniel and Revelation if we're going to understand end-time prophecy. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 25 says, And he shall speak. Now, the he here refers to who? The he here refers to the man of sin. It says, he shall speak great words against the Most High. They shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and a dividing of time. So Daniel prophesies here that the man of sin, this son of perdition, will think to change times and laws. Now, I want to look at the uh, original Hebrew, or the actually it's Aramaic here, so the word times is from Zaman, from the Aramaic, refers to seasons or appointed occasions. And the word law refers to the Aramaic doth, and it refers to commandments, edicts, or statutes. So we see here that this man will institute a whole new system of worship. Now, according to the 11th chapter of Daniel, it says in reference to the man of sin, that this person will not honor, it says the Elohim of his forefathers. Now, I believe that phrase appears four to five times in Scripture. Generally, refers to an Israelite. In all other cases, we know that it refers to an Israelite. In this case, perhaps it refers to something else, but we know from Daniel 11 that this man, it says, will not honor the Elohim of his forefathers. So, again, he will change laws. He will change times. He will institute a new system of worship. You know, no doubt, you know, part of this worship will include the abomination of desolation. You know, Scripture speaks about this, this thing, this desolation that will be placed within the temple. Matter of fact, 
according to the Messiah in the Olivet Prophecy, he says when we see the abomination of desolation placed within the holy place, he says that is when we're to flee. Why do you suppose that is? Well, the reason that is, is when we see the abomination of desolation placed in the holy place, we know that the great tribulation has begun. That is the beginning of the great tribulation. It is when this abomination of desolation is placed within the holy place. That is when the great tribulation will begin. Now, we also see how long this despot will rule for. It says that he will rule until a time and a times in a dividing of time, where this refers to three and a half years. Time, one year. Times, two years. A dividing of a time, a half a year. So three and a half years. Matter of fact, we find this phrase almost verbatim, almost, not quite, but almost verbatim in the book of Revelation in 12, verse 14. This will also be a time, as we see here, a time of persecution for those who believe in the Messiah. You know, according to Yahshua in the Olivet Prophecy, the Great Tribulation will be the worst time this earth has ever and will ever see. No time will rival the atrocities that we'll see during this period. It's going to test the faith of Yahweh's elect like never before. And this is, again, why it is crucial as believers that we build our faith now. You know, I love the book of Joshua. I spoke about Joshua here recently. And the tenant and the attribute that I think of when I think of Joshua is boldness, is courage. And as Yahweh's people, we need to have boldness. We need to have courage. We're not here to predict dates and times. I don't know when this will occur. I do believe we're seeing many of the signs coming to pass. And if it does come to pass within our lifetime, do we have the strength? Do we have the boldness? Do we have the fortitude to stand strong? And believe me, we don't face any of that now. We don't face, I know some people say it's a real challenge to be here for Sabbath. Or it's a real challenge to keep the feast days. Or believe me, that's not a challenge. We will see a challenge if this time would occur in our lifetime. Now we see something similar to the, uh, with this final imam. He too will think to change times and laws. So again, Walid says in his book, the Mahdi will attempt to change the law by instituting Islamic Sharia law as far as he is able to do so. This activism already exists in every nation of the world. Behind all the masks, they all desire the, to replace non-Islamic legal systems with Islamic Sharia law and replace every constitution with the constitution of the caliphate. You know, what's amazing is that we really are seeing this occur in our day and age. Several years ago, I had the blessing to do a uh, program with uh, two ministers that I respect, uh, Elder Dwayne Wilson and Elder P. Vaca, along with Alan, and uh, we were looking at the Middle East, and I forget what it was. I think at the time it was 58 courts within England. Now are Sharia courts. Think about that. And those, as I understand it, those courts, they have as much pull from a judicial standpoint as, as any other court within that country. And we've seen this in other places throughout Europe. This is occurring. There is a push. There is an effort by many in the Islamic world to, to bring Islamic Sharia law within these nations, including here in the U.S. There's a few places we're seeing this influence in Michigan, other places throughout this nation. Now, another parallel we find between the man of sin and Muhammad al-Mahdi is this seven-year covenant, this seven-year covenant. I'd like to, um, again, focus on what Scripture says first. And here's what we find in the book of Daniel, real, real important prophecy, by the way. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it says, And he, he, a reference to the man of sin, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. In the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, 
and for the overspreading of the abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now I'm going to read from the Lamb's Bible. It says something similar, but a little bit different, a little bit differently. It says, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for seven weeks and half of seven. Then he shall cause the sacrifice and gift offerings to seize and upon the horns of the altar, the abomination of desolation and the abomination of desolation shall continue until the end of the appointed time. The city shall remain desolate. So the word week here represents seven years. It represents seven years and refers to the seven years of the tribulation. Now, we see here that this man will make a seven-year compact with, it says, many nations, many nations. And we also see here that halfway through this covenant that he will break it. He will break it. And then he will establish a new set of laws, a new system in which he will reign over. As a side note, it says here that the sacrifices and the oblations will stop. According to the Lams, it says the gift offerings will seize upon the, upon the horns of the altar. You know, I believe that this may show that for the first three and a half year of the, tri- of the tribulation that they're going to go back to a Hebraic form of worship. Because, again, we see here that he's going to cut off the sac- sacrifices and oblations. How do you cut off something that doesn't exist? To cut something off, to stop something, that thing has to exist. So we see here that it says that he's going to cut off, he's going to stop the sacrifices and the oblations. So I believe prophetically that we see a return to some sort of Hebraic worship, which, you know, in my mind would explain how many believers will be led astray. I believe believers will see this and say, hey, look at this guy. He's able to do all these great things. And now he's going back to this Hebraic form of worship. This must be him. This must be him. And believe me, I've seen people leave the faith for a lot less. This guy's going to be able to do some amazing things, show some amazing signs, amazing wonders. And then after all that, Scripture shows, indicates that this man is going to go back to some sort of Hebraic worship. Again, I don't, I don't think it's going to be hard for many people to be deceived. And again, that's why it's so important that we understand these prophecies. So what happens when this man brings an end to this agreement three and a half years into this seven-year covenant? Where it says here that he will set up the abomination. He will set up this, this abomination of desolation and force all of mankind to worship him and him alone. I'm not going to read it, but we know Paul also speaks about how this man will sit in the temple as Elohim, as a mighty one. So this man will set himself up. We see that in 2 Thessalonians, that this man will set himself up above all that is called mighty one. He will become the dictator and despot over this world, and no one will be able to challenge or oppose this man during this time. Now, like the man of sin, we also see something very similar within a Shiite tradition with this Muhammad Ahmadi. So he, again, referring to Walid in his book says, one Islamic tradition places the ascendancy of the Mahdi at the time of a final peace agreement between Arabs and the Romans. Now, the Romans should be interpreted here as referring to Christians, more generally the West. Although this peace agreement is made with the Romans, it is said to be uh, mediate, uh, mitigate through, specifically through a Jew from the priestly lineage of Aaron. The uh, peace agreement will be made for a period of how long? It says for seven years, seven years. So as a man of sin will make a seven-year covenant with many nations, we find here that according to a Shiite tradition that this Muhammad Ahmadi, this this final imam, will do the same thing, that he will make a seven-year covenant with many nations, with the Romans. And again, the Romans simply refers to the West. Some, some uh, on the Islamic side, just as a side note, refers, they believe Romans, because you see this, in, in, in Islam, Romans mentioned, or Roman, that this refers here to the U.S. So he will make a peace treaty, it says, with Christians in the West, and then will break that to enforce Sharia law. Well, that's precisely what we find from Scripture with the man of sin. The man of sin is going to establish a seven-year covenant. In the midst of the covenant, he will seize or stop the sacrifices 
He will think to change times and laws. He will institute a whole new system of worship, and he and he alone will be exalted and worshiped as a mighty one. And that is what we find also through this Shiite tradition of this Muhammad Ahmadi. Now, another similarity between these men is in connection with ten kings. So, again, let's see what Scripture says first. Revelation 17. You know, Revelation 17 is such an important passage. It is a key, key passage. Revelation 17 You need to put a note in Revelation 13 pointing you to Revelation 17. So Revelation 17, 12 through 13 says, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings. So remember, we saw in Revelation 13 the beast, and he had ten horns, right? Ten horns with ten crowns. The crowns, again, represented authority. And we see here that these ten horns represent ten kings, which it says, have no, receive no kingdom as yet. But it says, but receive power as kings, one hour with the beast. Notice that it says power as kings, with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. So notice first here that these ten kings have not yet received a kingdom. How do we know that? Or it says, again, Scripture says that they're going to receive power with the beast as kings. To my knowledge, the beast is not here. This kingdom is not existing yet. So these ten kings are certainly not in power. Maybe they're alive. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. It says here that they will have power as kings, and will rule with the beast for one hour. So what is this one hour? I believe the one hour there probably represents the tribulation. The tribulation. One hour just represents a small space and time. So what are these uh, kings that serve? What's the purpose of the ten kings? Where it says here that they have one mind. They have one mind. So they're unified in their goal. And it says here that their purpose is to support the beast. Their purpose is to support the man of sin. Now, before we talk about these ten kings, I want to share with you something again from what Walid says in his book corresponding to the Islamic tradition. So here's what he says. In 2002, a plan for the reestablishment of the caliphate was written by the Guiding Helper Foundation entitled The Plan for the Return of the Caliphate. According to the plan, the caliph would be assisted. Now listen to this. Listen to this. It says, would be assisted in his rule by a 10-member council of assistant caliphs. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that an amazing parallel? It says, these assistants or council members are similar to ministers in many of today's government. They have power as kings. They rule with. They support So along with scripture, we also see from the Islamic side that there is a plan to establish a 10-member Islamic caliph, assistant caliphs to support the main caliph, to support this Muhammad Ahmadi. You know, again, the parallels between what the Bible says and this Islamic tradition is really remarkable. And for this reason, it's not something I I believe we should overlook. Now, in Psalms 83, verse 3, I believe we find the identity of these ten kings. So it says there in Psalms 83, verse 3, 3, it says, They have taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against thy hidden ones. They have said, Come, and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. So notice here what we see. We see a league forming for what purpose? We see a league forming for the purpose of destroying Israel. It says that the name of Israel may be no more remembered. They want to obliterate the name of Israel. They want to obliterate the nation of Israel. That is the reason. That is the purpose for this confederacy. That is the reason for this league. goes on to say, for they have consulted together with one consent, meaning they are unified in this goal. They are unified in this goal. Just as the ten kings are unified, as they have one mind, we find here the same thing, that these people, these, these kings are unified says they are confederate against thee. They are against Israel. Tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab, 
the Hagarenes, Gebal, and, and Ammon, and Amalek, the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre, Asher also is joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. So number one, notice here that we find ten kings. Ten kings. And number two, these kings form a confederacy or an agreement for one reason. And that is, again, that the name of Israel may be no more remembered. That Israel would be obliterated as a nation. That is the reason for this confederacy. That is the reason for what we find here. That is the reason for this league. Now, it's important to remember and to understand whether this is historic or prophetic and also where these nations are located. So let's look at the first one. Is this historic or prophetic? Well, I've done some study on this, and I can't find any scholar, any historian to say that this is historic. Some point to the Six-Day War, but they'll also acknowledge it doesn't entirely fit. There's no time in history where where an event that we can point to saying that this occurred, this happened, meaning that it's likely prophetic, because if it's not historic, if it has not occurred yet, It must be prophetic. Now, do we know where these nations are located today? Well, the answer is, for the most part. We have a pretty good guess as to where these nations are located today. So based on our research, here are the modern nations as uh, as to where these nations would correspond to today. It says Edom. So Edom would represent southern Jordan. The Ishmaelites would represent the Arabs. Moab would represent central Jordan. The Hagarines would represent Egypt, Gebel, Lebanon. Amon, northern Jordan, Amalek, Sinai Peninsula, the Philistines, the Gaza Strip, Tyre, Lebanon, Asher, Syria, and Iraq. You know what's amazing about this list? If you look at this list, what's amazing about this list is that these are all Islamic Middle Eastern nations. Every single one is the Islamic Middle Eastern nations. Now, some will say that this is only a coincidence. Maybe it is. I tend to believe otherwise. I, I tend to believe that there's more to it. I think this is prophetic, and I think this is guiding our way into understanding who the ten kings are, that the ten kings are ten Arab nations who will support the man of sin or the beast. You know, until I see evidence otherwise, again, this is my view because it seems to fit. Again, there's no historical tie showing that this has occurred. We know that the man of sin will seek to destroy the people of Israel. We know that. Scripture is pretty clear that the nation of Israel is going to be endangered during this time, that the Jews will be endangered at this time. And we see again, just as Revelation speaks about ten kings, we see here ten kings for this, for this purpose. I want to re- review three points. Number one, the Bible speaks about ten kings who will reign with the end of the side. We see that here. Number two, there are some in Islam right now trying to form a restored caliphate according to Shia tradition, which would include ten assistant caliphs. And number three, as we see in Psalms 83, in the future, ten nations will form a confederacy that the name of Israel may be no more remembered. To me, it fits. It all fits. Now, the last parallel that I want to look at between the man of sin and Muhammad Ahmadi is the use of military force. Both of these men will be military men. And that's something not often understood, by the way. Many people believe that the beast is, is the Pope. Now, I know you can make the argument, and maybe you can, but, but I don't view the Pope as a, as a man of war. I know the Vatican's done some horrible things in the past, but I see the Pope as a religious leader, and I think most agree with that. But we see in Scripture that both of these men will be men of war. Daniel chapter 7, verse 23 says, thus he said, the four of the beast, and again, this four of the beast is a man of sin. says, the four of the beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. So the fourth king or kingdom here symbolizes man of sin, symbolizes his empire. It says here that he's going to be diverse, he's going to be different, he's going to be greater than all the other kingdoms. And if you go back to this prophecy, you can read about it. It speaks about Babylonia. It speaks about um, uh, Greece and these other nations. 
But it speaks about this fourth being that the man being the man of sin in his empire. You know, think about it. No kingdom has ever conquered the entire world. It says that this kingdom will conquer the entire world. Rome never conquered the entire world. Rome conquered much of the world, but not all the world. This man, this fourth beast, will conquer all the world. Now, we see something similar to this also in reference to the man of sin, the person, Revelation 13, verse 4. It says, And they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast. So notice, in the end, where the worship is going. This is all Satan's plan. You know, people, they don't realize it, but when they're worshiping the man of sin, they're going to be worshiping the evil one. It says they're going to be worshiping the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worship the beast saying, Who, now listen to this, it says, Who is like unto the beast? Again, this beast is different as we, as we see in Daniel. It says, Who is able to make war with him? You know, as we've already talked about, we see here that the man of sin will receive his power from the dragon, Satan the devil. And because they will worship the beast, because of this power, they will, they will really be worshiping Satan the devil. It's kind of a scary thought. Most of this world, at the end of this age, will be worshiping the evil one. This power, again, will, not be, will be wondrous, but demonic. In the last part of the verse here, it says, Who is able to make war with him, to make war with him. We see here that no nation will be able to challenge or defy the man of sin. He will rule as a dictator and a despot over this entire world. And that is, again, why this man is diverse. That is why he is different. Because unlike Babylon, unlike Medo-Persia, unlike Greece, unlike Rome, this man will conquer the world. He will conquer the world. And he will do so through war in large part. And we also know that deception's part of it too because Daniel 11, 11 speaks about flatteries. He's going to flatter people. So, so there's going to be political maneuvering too. But, but certainly we see here that he's going to be a man of War. It's amazing as we see this same thing, same sign with Muhammad Ahmadi. It says Ahmadi is portrayed throughout the Islamic tradition as being the military leader of the Islamic world revolution that will defeat all the other religions and political systems. Notice here it doesn't only say religions, political systems. You see, for Islam to be satisfied, everybody must either be Muslim or must subdue themselves to Islam. They're not happy unless this occurs. So do you see the parallels here between the end of Messiah and this final imam, this, this Muhammad Ahmadi? Both will fight. Both will be men of war. Both will be world dictators. Both will persecute the saints. And both will seek to institute a whole new system of law. Again, it's remarkable, isn't it? It's remarkable the parallels we find between the man of sin and this 12th imam, this traditional Messiah-like figure within Islam that will come before the prophet Muhammad returns to establish Islamic rule here on earth. And for this reason, again, I say that as believers, we need to be alert. We need to watch. I don't know when this time will come. It may come 20, 30, 40 years, maybe sooner, maybe later. But I think we're seeing many of the signs coming to pass. You know, Scripture speaks about how lawlessness shall increase. You know, we see in Scripture how it speaks about how homosexuality will be embraced, how immorality will go out the door. And we're seeing that today. We're seeing immorality, or we're seeing morality crumble. We're seeing righteousness crumble. I saw a news some sort of bishop something, I don't know. So she, she was a lesbian. And, and uh, what was she saying? Saying pornography was, I mean, it's just horrible. I mean, it's amazing how far we've gone as a nation and how far Christianity has gone. The days, you know, I, I had, was good friends with a man many years ago when I worked for the, the transportation department. He was a good Catholic, a good man. He was really a good man. And uh, we didn't talk theology, but we would talk morality. And uh, he, him and I agreed with most things. And, 
And it was amazing, you know, because he would tell me, he says, look, he says, I don't agree with the church on this and this and this. And one day we were talking, and he says, you know, when I was a kid, and this guy's probably in his mid-60s now, he says, when I was a kid, he says, all you heard was fire and brimstone, repentance. He says, now all you hear in the church, and he's still very active in the church, all you hear in the church is forgiveness and grace. There's no meat. There's no mention of sin. There's no call to repentance. And yet, what do we really see in Scripture? The main theme of Scripture is to follow Yahweh, to repent of our sins, to conform our lives according to his will. And that message is just, it's gone today. It is gone today. Christianity has just completely lost most of its roots. And again, that's why it's important that we are not close-minded. That's why it's important that we're not negligent with our faith. And that's why that it's important that we're not asleep right now, that we're alert, that we're cognizant. We're here are the facts. The Great Tribulation will be the worst time this world has ever and will ever see. Well, some of the elect will be protected in the wilderness. We know that some will die as a martyr, as a testimony to their faith. The world will hate those who call upon the name of Yahshua the Messiah. We know that. In fact, the word says that those who murder the saints will think that they're doing Yahweh a favor. That's how bad things will get. That's how bad things will be at the end of this age, that they're thinking they're going to do Yahweh a favor when they murder the elect, when they murder the saints, when they murder those who are following what Yahweh says within his word. But we need to remember above all else that our greatest defense is our faith in our Father in heaven and our belief in our testimony and the one we call Mashiach, call the Messiah. He is the one we look to. So while no man knows the exact time of Yahshua's coming, the end, of the end of this age, I believe it may be sooner than what many believe. And for this reason, again, it's important that we as believers are alert, that we're cognizant, that we're striving, that we're changing, that we're conforming to the will of our, of our Father in heaven because the words we want to hear are these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's why we're doing what we're doing. And I pray that we do that. I pray that we all strive to do his will and that we conform our lives according to his ways. Because I don't care what they say out there, the only way to receive salvation is when we do it his way. May Yahweh bless you.